Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We are so glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Matt, and I have the joy of being the campus pastor here and hanging out with you guys every week. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a fun season for us here at Bridgewater. For those of you who have been around for a while, um, you know life pre-COVID and life mid-COVID and life post-COVID uh, felt a little bit like the book of Revelation sometimes. Um, but I, I, we're here, and uh, in, in the process of the last couple of years, uh, I just want to give you guys a bit of an update here. In the process of the last couple of years, as what has been true across uh, pretty much every demographic of uh, work environments, there's been about a 41% turnover uh, nationally, which interestingly enough, I just saw a study that already 72% of those people who left their jobs during COVID already regret the switch. Um, and their statement was, grass isn't greener on the other side. Shocker. Um, anyway, <laughs> bummer, you left a good job for that one. Anyway, um, so uh, God, through his ways, has just kind of moved in Bridgewater a little differently pre-COVID and mid-COVID. Um, and there were some individuals who were on staff with us, campus pastors, who got uh, either moved on or um, moved on to a different ministry or a variety of ways. And so we were down three campus pastors, um, kind of in the middle of COVID. Um, since then, uh, as we mentioned, God has been faithful, and he brought in a campus pastor for our Conklin campus. And for those of you who don't know, actually, I guess I should clarify this. We have five campuses here uh, at Bridgewater. We all meet on the same Sunday. We all have campus pastors that uh, preach live every week. Um, so our Conklin campus is going well, uh, but then two weeks ago, we voted, um, and we're the overseers. I am one of the overseers for Bridgewater as well. There's uh, uh, seven, I believe, uh, overseers, and we nominated a candidate for our Tunkanic campus, and uh, two weeks ago, they voted to affirm him um, as a new campus pastor there. Uh, so thank you for praying for that. That was a huge need that God met there. We're very excited for them and what that means for the ministry. Uh, and then this morning at our Vestal campus, we have a, a guy candidating uh, from Kansas City for the Vestal campus position, which would be our final uh, campus pastor need that we would need to be filled. Uh, the turnaround uh, to replace three pastors um, normally, it takes about two years to replace a campus pastor or a pastor. Um, that's kind of the average, 18 months to 24 months. Um, God has done all of it in about nine to 10 months. Um, so glory to God, and thank you for praying. just want to give you guys an update on that. Um, so we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, we are wrapping up the series this week, and we've been looking at this church in first century Corinth that Paul uh, planted and wrote a letter back to, to uh, kind of instruct some of the ways. So this church has been around for about three years, and in those three years, they went pretty wild. Um, they did some things that were reckless, and we talked about some of that last week. They were very careless with sin and, and a whole bunch of other things that goes on later on in the book. I encourage you to read the rest of the book yourself. We're going to hit some different chapters and throughout the rest of the book over the course of the year, but we're going to end this series in chapter six, but the first four weeks, um, Paul was dealing with one issue, and what was that one issue that he hit over and over again? Division, Division yes, all right. I, I know this church is not that big, so I know most of your faces, so I know you were here for the last four weeks. It was unity and division, all right? So he, he, the big problem with the church was that there was conflict. He says, let there be no division among you, that we would be of one mind, that there were Christians who all claimed the name of Jesus but weren't walking in unity. And, and unity is one of those weird things because we feel like um, in order to have unity, if the building's on fire, you just pretend that the building's not on fire and you have this like utopian peace and unity. And that's not what unity is. Unity means we deal with the problems at hand. When we see smoke, we deal with smoke so that it doesn't burn the building down. And so that's what Paul's doing in this letter is dealing with the problems that could potentially ruin the church's ability to do what God had called them to do. And wherever the church, whatever the generation, uh, whatever the century has the same goal, that the cross of Jesus Christ would be preeminent in our lives and it would be pre preeminent in our speech and so that our communities would be transformed by the message of Jesus Christ. 
That is the reason we exist. That is the reason we are here. We're not here because this is fun, though we hope it is fun. We're here because we've been given a message of salvation that the world needs. And that's where Paul was getting frustrated because the way that they were living, their life wasn't allowing that message to go forward. And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. As Paul's dealing with in chapter 6, some of the problems uh, where last week it was an individual problem, this was problem amongst believers. They were um, suing each other and they were taking each other to small claims court, essentially. Uh, And so we're going to talk about that today. But as we get into it, I want to ask you a question um, that is going to help frame up where we're going today. And I I hope it uh, stirs some thought in you. What's your reputation? What's your reputation? If somebody were to say your name, so, hey, Matt Pusser, what's everybody thinking of directly after that statement? Now, some of you who are my friends probably have a few extra things you would add in there than most. But when somebody hears your name, what follows that in their thought process? Maybe even it comes out of their mouth. Another way to ask the question is, what am I known for? What am I known for? What is, uh, when people hear what's going on, what comes to mind? Now, I know reputations are not everything because reputations can be tricky. Sometimes you used to be something before and then maybe you met Jesus and now you're a totally different person, but you've had a hard time leaving that reputation behind. Um, Sometimes people just have bad intentions and so that can kind of tarnish your reputation, but reputations mean something. They mean something to the people around us, and they mean something for the lives we live. So I have some things that I wrote down, just some thoughts on possible rep- reputations that I've heard. Um, they're churchgoers, but man, they're a mean businessman. They like to talk on Sunday, but you should see them Friday night. They really are the nicest people ever, and there's something really compelling about them. I've never met anyone like them before. No one is more caring. If I see them in the store, I do my best to quickly run down another aisle to avoid them. I might even leave my grocery cart there. You all have one of those in your life, all right? Don't lie. They go to church, but man, there seems to be so much drama surrounding them all the time. They're the most generous people I've ever met. Now, I know this is an uncomfortable question, but I think it's going to help us land where uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 would have us land. And it's just considering um, what do we look like to the world around us. So we'll come back to that question. I just want you to think through it as we go through the message today. Um, So we're talking about small claims court, essentially. And what was happening in first century uh, Corinth was basically Christians were taking Christians to court over frivolous lawsuits. And if you've listened to the news over the last uh, decade or so, there's some ridiculous frivolous lawsuits out there that you have to kind of wonder, like, am I reading the Babylon Bee or is this actually a news article? I'm not quite sure. And um, I want to tell you a couple of them today. There was these two robbers who were robbing a house and in the process of ransacking the house, they got hurt. And uh, when they came out, they ended up suing the homeowner for unsafe conditions inside of the home they were robbing. And they won, okay? So note to self, make sure if they fall through the floor, they just keep falling through the floor, all right? No, you didn't hear that from your pastor. I didn't say that loud, all right? Ridiculous, all right? But they won. Then there is uh, the guy, he was ironing his clothes while he was wearing them. This is one of our politicians, you're welcome. Um, He was ironing the clothes while he was wearing them and he burned himself. And then he in turn sued the iron company for burning him. And he won. And you're thinking, I've done that. I just never thought to sue anybody. Okay, well, he beat you to the punch. Now you can't get away with it because I got that tag that says, don't be this guy. All right. So then there's this other guy. He bought a Winnebago going down the road sets it on cruise control, 
and does what any of us would do when our uh, RV is on cruise control. He goes back and makes himself breakfast <laughs> while the thing's going down the highway at 60 miles an hour, crashes, and then sues Winnebago for putting cruise control inside of his Winnebago. Now, I don't know if he won or lost that one, but it's a true story. Now, there's the one that probably all of you know. It's the, the one of the lady back in, I mean, this is back in the 90s, I think. Um, she was drinking her hot coffee at McDonald's one day, which should have been sitting around about 140 degrees, but instead it was about 190 degrees, and the lid came off, and down came hot lava, and uh, burned her legs and, and everything around there, and it was awful. And, you know, you probably have heard this, but what you don't know is that coffee really is supposed to be served at 140 being served at 190, there was already 700 complaints lodged against McDonald's for how hot the coffee was. And all this poor lady wanted was for them to pay for the necessary skin grafts to take care of the third degree burns that she suffered all over her legs, which would have cost quite a bit of money because it covered almost the entire bottom half of her body in burns. And they refused to pay for the skin graft. And so then she ended up making $2.8 million off of a cup of hot coffee. And that's why all of you have warning labels on your coffee cups now, all right? Yeah, I, I saw a picture when I was looking for one, and it said, um, uh, we should have to, or uh, if we were in America, we would have to tell you that this coffee is hot, but, but thank God we live in Canada. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought that one was pretty funny. But why are we talking about frivolous lawsuits? Well, well here, here's, the, here's the reality. There's more lawyers in the world, than the, or in the United States, than there are doctors. There's more lawyers in the, in the United States than there are doctors. And I'm not saying all lawyers are bad, but it says something about our culture when there's more people willing to do litigation than there are to, to help sick, dying people. And there's no shortage of sick and dying people around us. Ken Sandy, he runs Peacemakers International, which is a, a kind of a Christian reconciliation organization. He says there's between four and eight million Christians who file lawsuits uh, every Year. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're not thinking about filing a lawsuit, or uh, maybe you are thinking about filing a lawsuit. There's some really good principles in here for wherever you are this morning um, that I think the Word of God would speak to us about how we're supposed to handle uh, disagreements and being wronged and, and all of those uh, things. But you need to understand Corinth if you're going to understand this passage correctly. So the city of Corinth, where Paul is speaking to this church, um, had two places where um, they held court, if you will. One was the Bama Seat of Judgment, which is where the highest uh, ranking Roman official would come in, and he would sit in the Bama Seat, and they would come, and he would handle the political crimes against the state. So um, if you committed a crime against uh, a military efficient or murder or whatever of those things, he would be the one that would come and sit and deal with the military or political issues that came uh, up. Then there was another place um, called the Tribunal, which took place in the, the city commons. So the best way I can describe the city commons is imagine the Town Square Mall where like Walmart and Lowe's and all of those stores are. Imagine if they were all right there and they were the only places that you could buy anything in all of the southern tier and none of you had cars, you had to walk there. You can imagine how jam-packed that place would be. It's very similar to what the center of Corinth would have felt like and the tribunal was held right in TGI Fridays, right in the open parking lot area, essentially. So right in the middle of the biggest place of commerce. And if you remember week one, Corinth had a lot of international traffic because you had to go through Corinth to get to Rome or to get to the eastern end of the empire. And there, it, there in the middle of all of that, is where you dealt with if somebody stole your donkey or wanted to claim a part of the land that wasn't yours or if somebody wronged you out of money, that's where the tribunal took place. So Paul is going to get into this and he's going to deal with conversations and deal with conflict that are taking place in the tribunal. All right, let's go ahead and open with 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and we'll see what Paul has to say about Christians suing Christians at the tribunal. 
If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it to the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? This word dispute um, really just meant civil matters, right? So this is not talking about murder or things like that. He's talking about if somebody wronged you, somebody stole property, somebody stole uh, your animal, whatever of those, uh, what we would call small claims or frivolous lawsuits. And he says, what are you doing? Are you really going in front of um, the world to solve these problems? If you have a dispute, why are you going to the ungodly? Why are you not dealing with it in-house? Verse 2, or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life. Paul says, do you not think there's anybody in-house, anybody in the church that's wise enough, to, wise enough to be able to handle this conflict? These things are civil. They're, they're simple. We should be able to handle them. And he says, don't you know we're supposed to judge angels? And you're reading this going, no, Paul, I didn't know I was supposed to judge angels. Thank you. I did, like, how am I supposed to know I'm supposed to judge angels? All right. So what's he talking about? Well, the best we understand is that uh, when Satan rebelled against God, he took a third of the angels with him um, over to darkness, and they began to just have their way in havoc with sin. And um, in, in that process, God, um, through Jesus, defeated sin at the cross. But there is a period of time where um, sin still has weight here until Christ returns and finally puts a squash to sin and Satan and all of his cronies, all right? Now, what he's referring to is in Revelation, there seems to be this idea that Christians are going to sit in a place of judgment with God or judgment with Christ that we will share in his authority to judge um, the angels and the demons. Revelation 19 and 20 says, there will be a day where they are squashed. And so Paul is saying, listen, in the millennium reign of Christ, as a believer, you will sit with authority to rule over eternal things. Can you not figure out who owns the corner of the property on your own? Can you not figure out who that property or that money actually belongs to? And his point is this, that if you've been given the Holy Spirit, you've been given the mind of Christ, there should be some wisdom in you to solve some of these problems in-house. And if you're gonna solve these problems, don't these earthly things look a little, I don't know, wasteless, useless, dumb to even argue about? He's trying to get them to think eternally. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? He's talking about going to people um, that don't believe like you, don't think like you, don't hold the same values as you to begin to solve your problems, right? Like he's, he's coming against... Uh, he's just speaking plain logic here. Like, you have marital problems. You're not going to go to somebody whose marriage you don't respect and ask for advice, are you? You're, if you're having financial problems, you're not going to go to somebody that you know is broke and say, help me, right? Why? Because it, it just wouldn't even make sense. And he's saying, if you have disputes, why are you going to people who don't hold the same values that you Hold. And his point is that the Roman government wasn't held to the standards of Scripture. There was a standard of Roman law, but it was not the same as God's law. And there's this contradiction here that we can feel sometimes that just because something is legal, we're allowed to do it. That might be true for the world, but it's not true for the believer, right? Legality does not equate morality, and while Christians are held to this standard, the world isn't held to that standard. And so as we look around and say, well, they're getting away with it. Sure, they are for now. God will have something to say about that. 
but our standard is not the world standard. And this is confusing for us. It was less confusing for them, but it's probably more confusing for us to some degree because we live in a land that's most of its laws um, were at one point founded on scriptural values, founded on biblical values. But the thing is that's not necessarily true anymore. And that probably won't be true for a time to come. And so the gap between what is legal and what is right for the believer will continue to grow. And Paul's point is, why are you going to a place to solve a problem that should be solved with people who share the values of, of the Lord and love and faith and forgiveness? Why, why not go there first? And here's why. Paul gets a little bit feisty uh, in this whole section. And he says in verse 5, he says, I say this to shame you. Interesting. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The reason Paul is so fired up about this, the reason he's so frustrated at the church at Corinth is because um, all of this conflict was taking place right in front of non-believers. So here you have this church who's already enduring persecution because the enemy doesn't want the church to flourish, who is now taking their problems out into the public sector and saying, here's our dirty laundry, uh, this Christian over here, uh, he cheated me, and everybody needs to know that. And the world is looking and going, What? <laughs> Why, why would we ever come to church with you? Why would we ever walk in, not only are we going to be persecuted, you don't even like each other, and you're doing this in the public, and Paul's furious. Why? Because he knows the church exists to represent Jesus to the world. Now, we don't have a public trial of, or public tribunal in which we deal with our problems. We have the public sector of social media. We have the gossip rings and the gossip circles, and we have... Um, our phones, and Paul's point in principle is this. <laughs> Why are we allowing these unimportant things to become public matters? Why are we allowing um, the conflict here to go up on our Facebook and just shred somebody? And like we think we're being incognito because we dropped some few words out, but like everybody knows who that conversation was about. Everybody knows who those comments were about, right? The did you hear what they said? Did you hear what she did? Right? Like, what is that? That's the, the court of public tribunal. Conflicts in the public environment. And Paul says, you've forgotten your mission. If that's the case, you've forgotten your mission. And Paul clarifies the mission actually in the next, chapter, in the next book that he wrote to them, 2 Corinthians. He says this, and I think it's helpful for helping frame up this whole thing from Paul. He says this, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Let's park right there. He says, you understand that as uh, Christians, we have been pursued by a God that we wronged. We were in a broken relationship. Reconciliation means to be brought back into ordered relationship. Says we were in broken relationship with God, and that God, through Jesus, pursued his enemies, pursued those who had wronged him, pursued those who deserved judgment, covered that judgment with his grace and his mercy on his sacrifice at his cost that we might be returned to right relationship with God. You see, that's the gospel. You and I made right with, in right relationship with Jesus because he paid a debt we owed and then he says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, which means you and I 
wherever you are, whatever you work at, whatever position you hold in life, your mission is this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It says you've been given a mission to represent Jesus. See, the thing about reputations that's so important is my reputation and Christ's reputation are very closely tied together. When people look at me, not just because I'm the pastor, but because I'm a Christian, when people look at you and you're a Christian, they are writing a narrative of who Jesus is based on the life you live. They're deciding what they think about Jesus based on this. Why? Because we are Christ's ambassadors. And I don't always feel the weight of this passage, but there's certain times I do. And I think if you walk away with nothing today, walk away with the fact that you are an ambassador of Christ. When the world around you looks at you, you represent something much larger behind you and it is the reputation of Christ. And so the win for us, if our mission is to represent Jesus, the win for us is not the win that you think it is. The win is when Christ is exalted among the nations. When Christ is exalted in our workplace, when Christ is exalted in our families, that's the win, not what we think it is, which is what Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have already been uh, you, excuse me, you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Paul says the very fact that you're even in court, you're very, even thinking about court, the very fact that this matter is public means you've already lost. Even if you win the argument, you've already lost this. Why? Because the reputation of Christ could have been, or most likely was, Stained. And he says something in here. He says, why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? I don't know if there's a more un-American statement than those two questions. As Americans, is not that one of the deepest values we hold is my rights and my justice. My rights and my justice. That nobody has the right to take my rights. I demand justice. And it doesn't matter where you land on any of the matters. We all feel that way. Why? Because we're humans. <laughs> Because we all have a deep sense of self-justice in us. And Paul is saying, why not rather just be wronged? Why not just be cheated? Well, because. Well, 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 why? Well, because. Okay, but why? And his whole point is this. When you look at Jesus, it's hard to argue against it. Why? Because the way of Jesus is so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. Jesus tells you to go serve your enemies. Jesus came and died so that his enemies would be forgiven. Jesus came and served the least of these. Jesus came and didn't win every argument because he didn't need to win every argument. The way of Jesus is the one of loss, and that feels weird. That feels wrong. So Paul says, if you need to understand the way of Jesus to understand how to handle conflicts well, Here's a question I have for you. I hope it stirs some thought. It's this. Am I more focused on my rights or on God's reputation? Am I more focused on my rights and getting my way and making sure that I'm not the one who's losing here and making sure that I'm taken care of and whatever you want to finish that sentence with, is that more important to us or is the reputation of Christ being exalted in whatever circumstance more important to us? Here's... 
I'll, I'll play this out in a scenario for you. Maybe this will be helpful. This is kind of walking through 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's say you hire, uh, you're a Christian and you hire a Christian to come do some drywall in your house. And you sit down and you agree on the project, you agree on the price, um, you agree on you know, what, what's going to all be done, and um, you say, awesome, great job. You go away, uh, they're, they're working, and you get a text after two days and says, oh, job's all done. And you think to yourself, there's no way the job's done in two days. This just can't be. So you go home and you realize not only is the job not done, I wouldn't even call that drywall, right? Just an absolute terrible job was done. So you call the guy and say, hey, um, you're going to come back and fix this? Like, certainly you're not done. Did you get sick? You need to come back? No, 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 it's all done. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all done. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we agreed on. That's the price you, uh, that was the quote. No, it certainly wasn't. <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, what would be natural to do would be probably call some friends, vent off some frustration, call your other contractor buddy and come see what the work was done and try to get a game plan. And then you're gonna go back and probably demand some money from this guy, right? Either demand he pay back the money or demand he fix it. And he refuses to fix it without more money. Well, you're not gonna pay more money because you already paid the contract. You tracking with me? You feel that tension? Well, according to 1 Corinthians chapter six, what we ought to do if you're both believers is to come to a spiritual leader either a, a pastor or a church leader or a deacon or an overseer or somebody and say, help us reconcile this. Help us come to terms. Now you may think, what in the world does a church leader know about drywall? Probably nothing. But the problem isn't the drywall. The problem is you felt wronged. You felt cheated. There was dishonesty. dishonesty. You were lied to. Trust me, pastors know a lot about those things. All right? Or you do what the world does. You get mean threaten a lawsuit, you leave a bad Yelp review, you go on Facebook and you screenshot the whole conversation and you just shred them so you never use this person, da 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 Now, most of those practices, totally acceptable by the world's standards, totally acceptable. In fact, you were shrewd, you were wise because you saw that. But Paul says, no, 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 no. If you've gone there, you've lost. Even if you get all the money back, you've lost. Wouldn't you rather be wrong? So after all of that, nothing would have worked. Let's say he comes from another church. You get that pastor involved and your pastor involved. Still nothing happens. There's organizations out there called Peacemakers, uh, which we can say any of the one I mentioned earlier that helps uh, Christians reconcile these kind of things. If that doesn't work, what do you do? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you take a financial bath. You just lose. You pay another contractor, you do it yourself, and you let it go. Now that's tough especially if money's really important to you or if money's really tight, that's tough. And so what's more important? My rights or Christ's reputation? That's the question Paul is asking. So if you're in conflict, how, how do you know? How do you know when to do this? How do you know? All right, you ask this question. Here's a question you can ask. Go ahead and throw it up there. Is this dispute worth someone's eternity? Is this dispute worth someone's Eternity. Whatever the argument or disagreement or potential lawsuit might be, ask the question. If this uh, party or somebody around this party were to hear this conflict, would it get in the way of them coming to Jesus? And this circle is often bigger than we think it is, right? Will this conversation or this lawsuit affect the judge's ability to come to Jesus because of how we talked about each other? Will the court county clerk sitting there think going, Never going to their church, jeepers. 
And I would love to say this didn't happen, but I know it does. Why? Because we're all humans and because we all have our rights. And I would love to stand up here before you and say that I've never struggled or failed at this. And while I've never taken anybody to court, I haven't gotten this one right. There's people in my life that I don't have the right to speak the gospel to anymore because of how I've handled situations, because of how I've acted. It breaks my heart. And so I have to stop myself because I have a deep sense of self-justice because of my upbringing. I felt like I always had to prove something. I had to be right. I, had to, I was argumentative and I could kind of do whatever I wanted or needed to win that argument. And it, it cost. Not only did it cost friendships, it cost my ability to share the gospel. And I'll tell you what, I ask myself this question all the time. Is what I'm frustrated about right now worth losing the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody? And I would love to say that I've always answered that question correctly, but I haven't. And so for you, I don't know you all super well, but I know humans enough to know that conflict is everywhere, or at least the opportunity for it. What are we going to do with it? Paul continues in this section, and he gives both a warning and an encouragement. Um, and I think it's really helpful to help us understand this idea of losing temporarily, but winning in eternity. Here, here's what he says in verse 9. Or do you not know what wrongdoers, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He lists some sin, and it's not an exhaustive list of sin, but he basically, I think it's both an, a warning and an encouragement. A, an encourage, or I'll start with a warning. A warning that if we as a believer say you're the other guy in that drywall conversation, right, not walking in godliness, not walking in rightness, there's a warning here for you. That if we claim to know Jesus, yet we do not walk in obedience to him, we are liars, as First John would tell us. The word of God is not in us. That if we claim to know Christ, but nothing about our life has changed, that Paul gives a warning for that. That how you live reveals what you believe. But also, I think it's an encouragement. I think it's an encouragement to those who have ever been on the um, receiving end of an injustice or a wrong, that it's not lost on God. That just because you didn't get revenge in this moment, that like God didn't forget about it. And here's where the gospel needs to infiltrate our thinking. Because um, when, <laughs> when those who are in opposition to us, that we would often call our enemies, if God were to judge them, we should not rejoice, we should weep. Why? Because they're a soul that is under judgment, just like you and I were apart from the grace of God. See, the, the, the truth is, friends, we don't have enemies in this world. It feels like we have enemies. We have one, and his name is Satan. But anybody on the other side of a conflict falls into one of two categories. They're either a believer who is not walking in right relationship with Jesus and is headed towards pain and we ought to hurt for them and help steer them back as we talked about last week. Or they are a non-Christian who doesn't know the love of Jesus, who desperately needs to know of his love, grace, and forgiveness that their dead heart might be brought back to life. We don't have enemies. We have lost people or people who are headed towards harm. And that's Paul's whole argument is would you see the eternal value of the individuals involved more than the earthly value of the conflict that's at hand? And he ends with a verse of humility. And he says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Meaning before you came to Jesus, the sin was true of our life. But when Jesus stepped in, he brought our dead heart 
to life. And he saved us from our sin. See, these, these, I, there, this idea of losing or being willing to, to give these things up is crazy until you think about it in terms of the gospel. Because in the court of God's kingdom, all of us are guilty. We all owe a debt we couldn't pay. We, we all are unwilling or unable to make those things right. And yet in the, the court of God's kingdom, Jesus took the penalty. Jesus took the fall. Jesus took the hit so that we might be forgiven and understand the grace of Jesus. And when the cross filters these things, all of a sudden it makes total sense, does it not? Here's how I want to conclude the series. I think it's kind of how you conclude this chapter, but I think it is more than just this chapter. I think it kind of wraps up why we had this conversation, why uh, we jumped into 1 Corinthians and what it means, and it's, it's this. The world judges us by our behaviors more than our beliefs. The world judges us by our behaviors more than our beliefs. There is this tension you will feel in Christianity, and you should always feel this tension. It is, I am saved by grace, and there's nothing I could do to earn it, and I'm called to do good works. The confusion is sometimes we think those good works have earned us our salvation, and that's not true. We have been given that salvation by Jesus, and then we have been called and commissioned to do good works. Those good works are what the world gets to look in on and see what they think about and feel about the God we believe in. So your unbelieving friends really probably aren't concerned with your theology, though some of them might be. Primarily, they're concerned with how you treat them. Primarily, they're concerned with how you behave because it's the window to the soul. And so how we behave matters. See, how we treat the individual at the drive-thru says a lot more than how our Bible study went this morning. How you treat the server at the restaurant who's having a hard day says a lot more about your understanding of love than if you can piece apart agape and phileo. Uh, and it has broken my heart, and I haven't heard this about any of you, so this isn't at you. This is just um, in general. It breaks my heart because I have friends in the service industry who say they hate taking Sunday afternoon shifts because church people are just the meanest. That breaks my heart. Why? Because that was an opportunity for someone to make a judgment about Jesus based on how we behaved. And listen, let's have grace with each other here because we all have our moments, do we not? I have my moments. But here's the encouragement that Paul, or Peter gives us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Be careful, pay attention, be thoughtful, think through. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. How you live in your neighborhoods, all those things matter because... And may give someone the opportunity to repent and find Jesus all sufficient before God judges. They might find grace. So my challenge for myself, my challenge for you out of this is that when we live a life that when somebody or if somebody were to throw shade at us, our neighbors or even our unbelieving neighbors would say, there's no way that's true. I know them. They're the kindest, most generous, most thoughtful people. There's no way that could ever be true about them that even the unbelievers would come to our defense. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what Peter is saying. That's what they're all saying. The world will look in and, and the reputation of a believer would be one that reflects Christ well. So I'll ask you the question I asked you in the beginning, what's your reputation? What are you known for? And maybe you're like me and you want to continually remake that reputation and continually grow because people knew you when you were young and dumb and immature and you're different now. Okay, 
The world will know our Jesus by how much we allow him to change us and by how much that behavior is represented out to the world. The end of the matter is this. Every interaction you have matters, whether it feels like it does or not. Every conversation matters. And we get to decide what the world thinks about Jesus based on how we live our lives.